Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR Show, where we save you time by providing you the too-long-didn't-read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube with video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is your Threat Intel Briefing for December 4th, 2022 through December 10th, 2022. I'm your host, John Good. If you're watching on YouTube, I appreciate it. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. If you think of anything that you want to see as far as overall content, if you see things in this that you like or that you don't like, or you know, really anything, things you want to see, let me know down in the comments. And then also, if you're listening on podcasting platform, because we're available on all the podcasting platforms, the Spotify, iTunes, pretty much all the major ones out there. There's a whole bunch of them. Uh, same thing goes, make sure to subscribe and leave a review as well. And if there's anything that you want to hear us talk about or hear me talk about or see on the show, hear on the show, all that good stuff, let me know. I take in all that content, all the comments and everything, and I try to incorporate that into everything to make the overall show better. So with that, we're going to go ahead and we're going to jump into the first article here. So first article, open source software host, boss host, Shutting down as CEO unreachable. Open source software hosting and cloud computing provider FossHost will no longer be providing services as it reaches end of life. FossHost project volunteers announced the development this weekend following months of difficulties in reaching the leadership, including the CEO. Users are being urged to immediately back up their data and migrate to alternative hosting platforms. There's a quote, it says, we're unable to pay for co-location costs, and that's why our servers will go offline as Thomas Markey, our CEO, is unreachable. A purported, uh, purported boss host volunteer is seen commenting on a Y Combinator hacker news post. So, you know, this brings up a really interesting point, right? So in your company, in your organization, whenever you're dealing with software and you're deciding who to go with and what to incorporate into your organization and into your infrastructure, you know, how reliant are you on that software, right? And that's what this really makes me think of. Whenever we start to implement software, you know, one of the things that software organizations do is they, you know, they have the idea of that they want to get you kind of incorporated or invested in that infrastructure, in that software as much as possible. And that way it just becomes part of your workflow, part of your, you know, your, your technology stack, your infrastructure, because then from their standpoint, right, the more incorporated you are, obviously, the harder it is for you to shift elsewhere. So that's kind of an important consideration, right? And, you know, you want to, as an organization, as a technology department, as a cybersecurity department, you want to know how you can transition if you have to, right? Companies go out of business. I mean, it happens for sure, right? And so in your organization, how do you transfer to other vendors? Are you implementing things in a certain way where it's not as difficult for you to transition out if you had to, right? You don't always want to just kind of hold back and not fully implement a solution because obviously that's going to limit how effective that solution is but you know when you're thinking about file formats or 
log, you know, log file formatting or extensions that you're using, you know, is it proprietary? Are you able to take that to other vendors and still incorporate that kind of solution? And, you know, that, that's a real concern, right? You want to be careful about being too locked into a specific vendor, depending on what you're doing, because that could hinder your business, right? And especially because in a lot of businesses, you're probably not the largest player for a lot of the vendors. You know, obviously it depends because if you spend a lot of money with a certain vendor, then you are that major customer and then they are more reliant on you and you can get them to, to do certain things that they might not do for a small player. But it's really just an interesting situation, right? And in this specific situation, the CEO is unreachable so what does the company do? They have no guidance. They have that uh, no top level strategy as far as how to navigate or what they should do. And so in this case, you know, they're looking at closing up shop and that absolutely happens. So it's really important that you consider something like that in your organization. Next article, UK government department using unsupported applications reveals watchdog. A major UK government department is relying on aging technology and IT infrastructure, thereby reducing the resiliency of vital services and increasing the risk of cyber attacks and new reports found. Almost a third, 30% of applications used by the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, uh, DEFRA, are unsupported, meaning security or software updates are no longer being issued for them. An investigation by the National Audit Office NAO, the UK's independent public spending watchdog, revealed. DEFRA is the government's department responsible for numerous critical environmental services, including disease prevention, flood protection, and air quality. Major cyber incident could have severe societal consequences. NAO's investigation concluded that while DEFRA is taking steps to address urgent service risks and vulnerabilities in its digital systems, it does not have a plan or the wider digital transformation that's needed. So, you know, with this, this is a serious issue, obviously, right? And one thing that we see a lot of times with government institutions, government entities, organizations, departments, whatever you want to call them, is that, you know, sometimes we do see them using kind of legacy software, legacy operating systems, whatever, right? Like legacy components for a lot of reasons, right? One thing that we've seen a lot, just especially in the United States, is that, you know, government pricing and incentives and things like that, they differ from other organizations, right? And so that's an important consideration, whether that's parts like a chair, right? Or software or applications, operating systems, all that kind of stuff, right? Like there's just, there's different rules with interacting with the government depending on the country, right? And, you know, just like with the United States, it's gonna differ how companies interact with the government and like the UK. And that's what this particular example is, uh, is talking about. And so, you know, with that, especially in the United States, because obviously I'm, I'm in the United States, but we are seeing the U.S. government actually be a little bit more proactive about this kind of thing, right? We're seeing them really 
try to take a stance as much as possible as far as getting some of these organizations more secure, uh, having things like risk management programs in place, supply chain security, not being reliant on super old technology and being very slow like they have been in the past, right? Uh, Windows XP and some of these older software applications and things like that that were around for a long time. For instance, there was articles and things showing about TSA or you know some of these other um, more visible government agencies using some very outdated technology, right? Like I remember seeing a video or an article a while back where uh, one of the, the the boards, the flight boards or whatever it was, the scanners with TSA having something like Windows 2000 installed, right? And so that's a serious issue. We see a lot of the private companies, the um, you know, the outside of the government institutions, and they are much more cutting edge than the government. They are much more agile in their technology that they're using. So it's not super surprising that we're seeing it with other governments, but it is a concern overall as far as you know, making sure that you don't have these legacy vulnerabilities. Because if you have legacy operating systems and applications and software that are hanging around, you know, that just dramatically becomes more of an issue the further out that you get. Because more vulnerabilities come up, they're no longer supported, and so you know, the vendor's not even supporting them, and you're just trying to hold on with what you have. And eventually, you know, if you wait for too long, it becomes even harder or more difficult to get out of that situation. And it requires much more investment than if you keep up to date as things are released. And for instance, when Windows 11 comes out, right? From Windows 10 and that came out, then if you upgrade you know, pretty much right away or relatively soon, it's gonna be a lot less of a headache than if you wait 10 years, as an example, to migrate, right? And that's just, that's how it is, right? So um, within your technology stack, you have to stay on top of these things. Otherwise, it's going to be much more difficult. Uh, next article, Rockspace rocked by security incident that has taken out hosted exchange services. So I don't know if you've heard about this with Rackspace, but some of Rackspace's hosted Microsoft Exchange server services were taken down by what the company described originally as a security incident. On Friday, December 2nd, 2022, and this is a quote, we became aware of an issue impacting our hosted exchange environment proactively powered down and disconnected the hosted exchange environment while we triaged to understand the extent and the severity of the impact. After further analysis, we have determined that this is a security incident. Rackspace has no idea when it will be able to restore its services to those impacted by the security incident. And the quote, we're actively working with support teams and anticipate our work may take several days, its status page advises. Incident manifested as what Rackspace described as connectivity issues, uh, connectivity and login issues. Then there was a follow-up article that says Rackspace confirms outage was caused by a ransomware attack. Not super surprised, right? Uh, Texas-based cloud computing provider Rackspace has confirmed today that a ransomware attack is behind an ongoing hosted exchange outage described as an isolated disruption. As you know, on Friday, December 2nd, 2022, we became aware Suspicious activity immediately took proactive measures to isolate the hosted exchange environment to contain the incident. The company said in an update to the initial incident report, we, uh, we have since determined this suspicious activity was the result of a ransomware incident. The company also revealed in today's press release 
uh, and this was on the 7th, uh, and in an 8K SEC filing that it expects a loss of revenue due to the ransomware attacks impact on a 30 million ho uh, hosted exchange business. So yeah, you know, I mean, with this, you know, a lot of companies are getting impacted by ransomware, right? That's not that big of a surprise. It happens, it continues to happen, and uh, it, it, become, it continues to be a struggle with companies and how they defend against ransomware and you know how they recover too, right? So not just how they're proactively trying to prevent it, but how do they recover after the fact and continue operations during that ransomware event, right? Or any incident or event uh, in general, right? And then of course, they're expecting kind of a backlash from customers who experience this. Now, with this, you know, again, this is kind of similar to what we talked about earlier within your organization. Uh, when you're so reliant on a vendor, you know, what's your contingency plan? What's your backup plan in case something happens? It's okay to have a reliance on a vendor to some extent, right? Like you're not going to develop everything that you use internally, right? And that makes sense. And obviously using cloud services and cloud hosting is a reasonable thing to do in today's environment. But, you know, what's your plan B if things aren't working? And what kind of services do you have that are hosted in those cloud providers or with those uh, SaaS solutions, right? You know, how critical are those solutions? Because that's gonna drive, you know, the other implementations that you have, the other software that you're using, the other providers that you're using, and, it's a really important consideration, right? That should be part of your business continuity and disaster recovery plans. Again, depending on the service, uh, the application or more, you know, whatever that we're considering here. But, you know, in this case, it was Microsoft Exchange. A lot of people obviously use email. That's kind of a critical system, a critical application for a lot of companies and, you know, probably uh, impacted several customers, right? And being able to, to even communicate either internally or with their customers or their vendors or suppliers or whatever the case is. So very important and very important consideration. Again, you know, in your business continuity disaster recovery plan, how do you prioritize these services? So like Microsoft Exchange email or email just in general, where is that prioritized in your, in your plan, right? Where, uh, how important is that? Would you lose money if that goes down? How long can you survive if that goes down? So it's not just email, it's all the services and applications and things like that that you have within your organization. So it's really important that you consider that. Next article, AI generated answers temporarily ban on coding QA, uh, Q&A site Stack Overflow. Who's heard about this one? Stack Overflow, the go-to question and answer site for coders and programmers, has temporarily banned users from sharing responses generated by AI chatbot ChatGPT. The site, site's mod said that the ban was temporary, temporary and that a final ruling would be made sometime in the future after consultation with its community. But as the mods explained, ChatGPT simply makes it too easy for users to generate responses and flood the site's a site with answers that seem correct at first glance, but are often wrong on close examination. ChatGPT is an ex, uh, experimental chatbot created by Open 
AI and based on its autocomplete text generator, GPT 3.5. Web demo for the bot was released last week and has since been enthusiastically embraced by users around the world. The bot's interface encourages people to ask questions and in return offers impressive and fluid results across a, a range of queries from generating poems, songs, and TV scripts, answering trivia questions, and writing and debugging lines of code. So, you know, with this in general and kind of in the grander scheme of things, AI is really an important uh, discussion, right? Everybody keeps talking about how robots are gonna take over the world and they're gonna take over all these different, uh, you know, facets of life, different technologies, different jobs, things like that. And it certainly is interesting, right? Like there's been a lot of discussion already so far on that, on this from this week. But, you know, it's kind of that whole Terminator thing. If you've never seen Terminator, you know, robot, robots taking over the world. And we've seen this in uh, warehouse settings and Amazon and things like that, where they're having Amazon, uh, robots go in their warehouse and do certain things. Uh, I don't think that we're quite there yet as far as robots completely being able to take over a lot of this stuff, but it's certainly interesting, right? And, you know, something like this, especially initially, is definitely scary, right? Because, okay, so you want to allow robots to kind of generate some of this artificial intelligence kind of information, and that way there's not all these users that have to necessarily be involved in the process, especially if the answers are more accurate. But if the answers aren't always accurate or, you know, more accurate consistently than like a user would be, you know, that certainly raises questions of doubt. And I think we're always going to have that, you know, for a long time, especially because AI is still relatively new. It's not entirely accurate in a lot of cases. There's certainly examples where it makes sense to be able to use it. But as for example, in cybersecurity, right? What about the responses that we have to incidents or to certain events? You know, can we reliably make that happen where it, the computer is going to accurately respond and appropriately response every time or at least very, very consistently, right? Like 99.99% of the time. I don't think we're quite there yet, but it certainly is an interesting uh, debate or an interesting discussion topic uh, in this, you know, certain situation. Obviously, Stack Overflow doesn't like that because... You know, let's be honest, in Stack Overflow specifically, right, that is a community-based uh, platform. And so they want user interaction, right? Think of a platform like YouTube, right? If you can use AI to generate your videos, you know, as an example, right, that decreases probably some of that user interaction or that user drive because it makes the barrier entry very low and it makes it very easy to just generate content. That's not necessarily what YouTube or a social interaction platform would like, right? And the same is with Stack Overflow. The easier I can generate answers for Stack Overflow, well, the easier it is it's gonna, for me to actually put out information and just you know, minimize uh, the, the time, the response time, right? And community-driven things, 
That's, that's kind of an issue, right? We want actual people to interact and generate the posts, generate the responses, and then of course be accurate as well. So it's definitely interesting. Uh, you know, anything new, I think a lot of times we're gonna see kind of knee-jerk reactions to, you know, incidents like this or examples like this. And then over time, if it's able to prove the model out, then I think we'll see kind of a pullback and people will be more, um, maybe more accepting of it or they'll find certain situations where it does work and then there won't be as much concern. But um, I don't think that we're quite there yet. So uh, let's see here. Uh, now there was another article related to this too that's really interesting. ChatGPT shows promise of using AI to write malware. And this is kind of another interesting uh, spin on this story. For even the most skilled uh, hackers, it can take at least an hour to write a script to exploit a software vulnerability and infiltrate their target. Soon, a machine may be able to do it in mere uh, seconds. When OpenAI last week released its ChatGPT tool allowing users to interact with an artificial intelligence chatbot, computer security researcher uh, Brendan Dolan Gavitt wondered whether he could instruct it to write malicious code. So he asked the model to solve a simple capture the flag challenge. The result was nearly remarkable. ChatGPT correctly recognized that the code contained a buffer overflow vulnerability and wrote a piece of code exploiting the flaw. If not, uh, if not for a minor error, the number of characters in the input, the model would have solved the problem perfectly. The challenge Dolan Gavitt presented ChatGPT was a basic one, one he could present to students towards the beginning of a vulnerability analysis course. And the fact that it failed doesn't inspire confidence in the ability of large language models which provide the basis for AI bots to respond to human inquiries to write quality code. But after spotting the error, Dolan Gavitt prompted the model to re-examine the answer, and this time, ChatGPT got it right. So again, with a lot of AI in the current state that it's in, it requires you know, a decent amount of learning and kind of manipulation, right? Um, corrections, we'll say, because it, it's still a process that has to be perfected. But, you know, in this specific article, the reason why that matters is think of this. If you can just go create some malware very easily and not even have to write the code, that's scary, right? And that becomes an issue for the wider scale uh, world, right? So it's, it's a little bit scary, the ability to do that and the extent that it could be... Uh, able to do that. And I think that if a system like this proves that model and the ability to do that, well, they're probably gonna get some regulation implemented on them, right, and enforced, because that starts to be even more scary. Just like with social media platforms like Facebook and things like that, you know, we're seeing that uh, these platforms are, you know, they're, they're having mass scale impact on organizations, on people. And once it gets to that large of a scale, that certainly becomes a growing issue and a growing concern that regulators start to look at and start to be concerned with because it's starting to prove out the model and you know it can, it can reliably impact a lot of people. So especially with the malware, that's a really big concern for cybersecurity people in general.
All right, so next article, TikTok national security deal faces more delays as worries grow over risks. A potential deal between the Biden administration and TikTok once expected around year end has run into more delays, according to people familiar with the situation. As worries grow over national security concerns that U.S. officials say the popular app poses. The review has dragged on amid a range of concerns, including how TikTok might share information related to the algorithm that it uses to determine the, uh, what videos to show users and the level of trust Washington would need to place in the company. These people said U.S. officials haven't returned to TikTok with additional demands to address the recent concerns. Some of the people said leaving the path forward unclear. TikTok spokeswoman said that the company is looking forward to a timely conclusion of our agreement with the U.S. government, much of which we had already stated implementing in earnest so that we can put the concerns to rest. She said that the government hasn't shared any remaining unmet concerns with the company. Both sides had broadly agreed that TikTok's data on uh, U.S. users would be stored on Oracle Corporation servers in the U.S., people familiar with the deal said. TikTok said that, uh, has said it expects to delete U.S. users' private data from its own data centers in Virginia and Singapore as it pivots to fully store data within Oracle Cloud infrastructure. So TikTok, surprise, surprise, right, is in the news again. I keep saying this, that we're going to have TikTok in the news more and more. and It's just going to keep continuing. And they don't disappoint, right? It's just like Twitter and Elon Musk. So TikTok. Uh, so if you're not familiar with what the issue is with TikTok, you know, they keep being in the news, right? Uh, so the idea is that their parent company is a Chinese company. And the uh, concern is that the Chinese government has a lot of influence with Chinese companies. They're going to be able to access a lot of data on people that are in the U.S. or that are U.S. citizens. So the U.S. government hates that, right? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what it boils down to. So there's been a lot of back and forth over the last couple years or so. Um, and TikTok comes back and says, well, you know, uh, Chinese government doesn't have influence over our data and that they won't be able to see that data or access that data. And, you know, with, <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. Um, but, you know, with that, there's been a lot of back and forth as far as TikTok wanting to or at least saying they want to cooperate and be able to uh, get U.S. users, right? Like they don't want to get forced out of uh, the U.S. market because that's obviously a big market, especially for a tech company, right? And so, you know, with that, we're seeing a lot of agreements or things that have to happen. And especially within the U.S., you know, a lot of times uh, there will be restrictions on where you can store data, right? And especially, again, if it's widespread, depending on what you're uh, harvesting as far as data. We also see this in places like the UK or in Europe with GDPR. And there's different privacy regulations that are going to restrict, you know, where you can store data, how you can harvest data, what kinds of data you can actually harvest and, you know, who you can share it with and all these kind of things. Right. So we're continuing to see with that with TikTok. I mean, TikTok just, that's going to be a tough business to be in because they, they just, they have really hurt user confidence and government confidence in their ability to, uh, to host that data and be secure, be independent, 
of their parent company. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it's not gonna, it's not really gonna go away. So it's just another interesting article that, uh, that you have to consider. Let's see here. All right, Google, uh, Google, Oracle, Amazon, and Microsoft awarded Pentagon Cloud deal of up to $9 billion combined. The Pentagon said Wednesday that Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and Oracle received a cloud computing contract that can reach as high as $9 billion uh, total through 2028. The outcome of the Joint Warfighting uh, Cloud Capability, or JWCC, efforts is in line with the U.S. Department's Defense Department's effort to rely on multiple cloud providers of remotely operated infrastructure technology, as opposed to relying on a single company, a strategy promoted during the Trump administration. An increasing tally of businesses have also sought to rely on more than one cloud provider. In some cases, it relies on specialized uh, capabilities on one, of the, uh, one and the majority of front-end and back-end workloads on another. At other times, they, uh, they've come down to costs. Having more than one cloud might make organizations more confident that they can withstand service interruptions brought on by outages. Originally, the Pentagon had awarded the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure, or JEDI, uh, to Microsoft in 2019. A legal battle ensued in Amazon, uh, as Amazon, the top player in the cloud infrastructure market, challenged the Pentagon's decision. Oracle challenged the Pentagon's pick as well. So if you're not familiar kind of where this spun out of, Basically, the idea was that Oracle, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, all these cloud providers, they went after this major contract with the US government. Microsoft won the contract and was going to be awarded all of that business, right? And so that, that spun up the other cloud providers and of course they freaked out and uh, you know, started doing lawsuits and trying to fight that, um, fight that decision. Okay, and so that's the big idea. Now, with that, and think about this as far as resiliency and kind of what we've talked about already in this episode, in the show, you know, relying on a single vendor or being very locked into a single vendor is dangerous, right? In a lot of cases, depending on what you, what you have and how easy it is to pivot from a business perspective, right? Like there are things that make sense and sometimes it, it just does make sense to go with a certain provider, right? So I'm not, I'm not downplaying that or saying that that never happens. So it just, it depends, right? It's situationally dependent. With cloud, because that can impact a lot of things, a lot of times it makes sense to be, uh, to have uh, at least a presence with multiple vendors so that you can have pieces of your infrastructure in different organizations or different providers. Totally makes sense, right? Um, and especially in this kind of situation, U.S. government, they have so many services and so much need for cloud providers that it doesn't make sense for them to go with one provider, right? I'm sure the cloud providers would love you if, uh, would love them if they could go with one provider because uh, Microsoft or an Amazon or Google or Oracle, or whatever, gets all that business. You know, that'd be a lot of business. That'd be a lot of money. But, you know, it makes sense to kind of spread it out. Uh, from a uh, from a consumer from a customer standpoint, right? Because let's be honest, there's a ton of departments, there's a ton of networks, there's a ton of things going on. So it just it makes sense. And nine billion dollars combined—that's massive business, right? Um, 
And so, yeah, overall, I'm, I don't think anybody was surprised to see all these other vendors fighting back and trying to get that stopped or at least getting a slice of the pie, right? And so, it, again, it just it makes sense. As an organization, you have to have contingencies and, uh, and disaster recovery plans, business continuity plans, so that you can keep your overall business running if one provider or one service goes down, right? It, it makes sense. And, um, you know, as far as a career standpoint, right, another thing to consider is, you know, maybe being a little bit familiar with multiple cloud vendors, maybe not just having all AWS certifications, not just having all Microsoft certifications, you know, maybe at least being familiar a little bit with the different providers. It just makes sense. And it can make your life a little bit easier if you try to go in different areas, right? Um, even in the private sector in other companies, it makes sense if you have a little bit of uh, vendor diversity in your skill set, especially when it comes to cloud. I mean, cloud's huge, right? Like if from a career standpoint, if you want to specialize, that's totally cool. And that will, you know, net you a lot of money and rewards and incentives. So, you know, that's totally fine. But it also shows that you can learn a lot about different vendors, different cloud vendors, and you'll be okay, right? Like there's a lot of business for all of these different vendors. I would still, as your core understanding for cloud, stick to the major vendors. And especially, you know, in your organization, you know, I would put the bulk of your workloads, the bulk, bulk of your applications and services and infrastructure into one of the major providers, you know, so that's gonna be a Microsoft or a uh, Amazon, you know, just because they have the, mo the most market share of the cloud providers, but it's okay to experiment and use some of the other vendors and see what works really well with the others. Because things like licensing, the services that are offered, the ease of use, uh, the talent that you have on your staff and what they're familiar with, all of those things are gonna impact, you know, overall which one you prefer in your organization. And um, so there's a lot to consider with that, um, with that kind of situation. But again, it's, it's very interesting to just think about. So uh, that's gonna be the last article for this week. Check out the description. There will be a link to the show notes so you can check out the articles. You can read a little bit more about them. You can read some of the other articles that we didn't cover. If you're watching on YouTube, I appreciate it. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. Remember, we're available on all the podcasting platforms, so check it out on there as well. You can listen to it if you prefer audio version. And uh, with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up for this week, and I'll see you later.